chapter one. Like Steve said, we are two churches together uh, sharing our Sundays for so many, so many reasons. But one of the beautiful things is just a small glimpse of the kind of unity that God loves in his kingdom. Uh, And uh, not only unity, but like anti-territorialism that we can share, we can join our teams together, that we can sit under each other's teaching and, and meet other believers here in the city. It is a beautiful thing. Now, before, we've been doing this all summer, by the way. So if you're new, newish, we've been kind of toying and tinkering with this all summer long. But before summertime, we, Anthem Church, had kind of just dived into the book of John. Um, and so for anyone who is part of Arise, for anyone who is new and newish, have gotten connected over the summertime, or even for those of you at Anthem and you forgot we were in John because it's been so long, I, I want to do two things this morning. One is I want to spend a moment just giving like a brief overview of John and where we are in the story that he is writing. And number two is I actually want to dig into our teaching text for today. Um, And I'll I'll just say like the overview I'm about to do will be very insufficient. Uh, As much as I'm going to try to cover a bunch of stuff, it's not going to be enough. So if I can give you a little piece of homework to do sometime this week, is to go on the Bible Project's website and watch their two videos on the book of John. And they will like, I shouldn't even do an overview. I should just tell you to go watch those videos. Uh, They do an incredible job kind of surveying this magnificent book, and it will immediately bring you into the story. So that's your homework for the week. Is that all right? I know many of us are used to not getting homework anymore, but we're going to do it. So where we are in the book of John, we are kind of being... Jumping in in the tail end of John chapter 4. Now, John, the Gospel of John, emphasizes Jesus as God incarnate and the reality to which the entire biblical story points. Like, everything in Scripture is about Jesus, and that is the overriding point throughout the book of John. John's Gospel emphasizes Jesus' identity as the Messiah, number one, and number two, the Son of God. So Messiah, meaning this long-awaited, long-promised Savior for the Israelite people and the rest of humanity, and the actual Son of God. John emphasizes Jesus' unique ability to give eternal life to all those who would believe in him. And belief throughout the book of John is not an intellectual yes or no question. It is a full, uh, full life, all of life, faith and trust and allegiance to Jesus, the Son of God. And really the thesis for the entire book of John is found at the very end in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John comments on Jesus after his resurrection, and he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, meaning these stories, these teachings, these signs, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. Once again, not an intellectual yes or no pop quiz, but a full life, faith, trust, and allegiance in not only who Jesus is, but following his way for all of life. That's the entire book of John. You can break it up into four parts. Uh, There are maybe some easier chunks to digest. The first part is the prologue or the introduction. It's where we have this really robust Christology or this kind of theology of who Christ is and what he has come to do. And John, in those first few verses, I'm talking John 1-1 through 18, like right at the beginning, 
emphasizes that Jesus was with God at creation. Which if you remember that one line from Genesis, let us create man in our own image, it wasn't sort of solitary God, it was God in communion with the Holy Spirit and the Son, Jesus. He was with God at creation. It's a bold statement. And then John spends the rest of his gospel really fleshing out verses 1 through 18. So everything else throughout the book of John can be found in those first 18 verses. The second big part, so we have kind of the main body that's divided up into two chunks. One is the book of signs, which is just like miracle after miracle after healing after like exorcism. It's like Jesus on the move and people are being set free and healed. So it's often called the book of signs. It's where we have the seven main signs that John records. They're like miracles, but they're called signs because they're just more than like a... uh, just sort of like your table stakes miracle here, if you can even have one of those. They're signs because they point to Jesus and his true identity, and they're meant to provoke faith in him as Lord and Savior. So that's like John 1 through the end of John chapter 12. That's what's happening in the narrative. And then in John chapter 13, something switches. John chapter 13 on, that's all like the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. And so we have this robust teaching, and it's in that section we have the cross, where we have the resurrection, the resurrection. And so that's often called the book of glory. It's called the book of glory because Jesus' saving work, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, is repeatedly referred to in John as his glorification. It's also where we get some of his last teaching and instructions to his disciples. And then at the very end, John chapter 21, there's this like addenda. And jury's out with the scholars if John wrote that or someone came and attached that at the very end. But what John chapter 21 is like implications of the resurrection. So Jesus has died, defeated death. He's back and he's at the right hand of God. So what? And John chapter 21 is all about the implications of the resurrection going to all different kinds of people. That's the book of John. You guys tracking with me? All right. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The first half of the book is that on display via signs and miracles. The second half of the book, that's on display not only by his teaching, but his death and his resurrection. Where we find ourselves today in the story is the very end of John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 46. Preparing you right now, we're going to read a big chunk of scripture together because we have this cohesive narrative that we do not want to split up. So we're going to take a breath. Yourself. If it's helpful, by the way, to read along, read along. If it's helpful to close your eyes and sort of, this is narrative, so kind of imagine the situation that's at play here. Cool. If it's helpful to like hang out with your kids, hang out with your kids right now, whatever it is. So let's start at John chapter 4, verse 46. So he came again, Jesus, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs, there's that word, and wonders, you will not believe. And the official
physician said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Doesn't really engage with the question Jesus poses. Just says, you got to get over here, staff. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour. He's like, was this Jesus or was this something else? Tell me the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he believed it. And he himself believed in all his household. It's not just the one dude. It's everyone in the house. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judah to Galilee. Chapter 5, verse 1. That's one healing down. We got another one here. Now, after there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Which is an interesting question. Carlo said to me a little bit earlier, that was an interesting question. This is not what I'm teaching on. It's not the main point, but I thought it was such a good observation. This question is here because so often we don't want to be healed. We'd rather be a victim collecting affirmation, collecting pity from others, rather than experience the healing of Jesus. So Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? I would think, yeah, of course, obviously, right? But the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Ah, here we go. Now that day was the Sabbath. So we know there's trouble brewing because John includes what day it was. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Talk about missing the bigger picture. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man who said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, 
that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. These are fighting words right here, if you haven't picked this up already. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come in judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That's a weird verse if you want to do a little verse study on that one. And they'll come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Remember who he is talking to at this point. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious elite, those who thought they had an in with God. But the testimony I have, or he was burning in a shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, think healing the official son, healing the lame man at the pool, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. These were teachers of the Bible he's talking to. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Pray with me. Jesus, as we read a very large chunk of scripture out loud, I'm immediately thinking of how this was the only way Christians could experience scripture throughout history. Thank you for the opportunity to hear it. Thank you for the opportunity to engage in it. And Jesus, I just can't get away that the main tension in this story is between you and those who should have known better. The religious elite, those who knew the Bible the best. 
Jesus, would you generate and cultivate in us this morning humility? As we seek to learn from the text, would we not fall into the same trap of the Pharisees? Assuming we know it, assuming we have it down, pray for humility as we engage the text this morning. Amen. Amen. That was a long chunk. Thanks for hanging in with me. Uh, spoiler alert, we're going to be doing this a lot in John because John is long, and if we take shorter chunks, we're going to be here for years. So we're going to be reading some large passages of Scripture out loud in our gatherings over the next few months together. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had an encounter with Jesus that forced a decision in your life? Maybe it's like salvation decision. Maybe it was a healing moment or just a moment of conviction around sin or lifestyle or something that was happening. Have you ever had that moment? What was that like? What did that feel like? What was the outcome? How were you changed? One of the things we see throughout the book of John and anecdotally in our own life is that encounters with Jesus force you to decide something. They never leave you where you are. And often, those choices boil down to two. Will we follow him more closely, or will we reject and distance ourselves from him? That's it. I don't want to be overly reductionistic, but I feel very confident throughout Scripture and even in our own lives that every encounter with Jesus, whether it's that saving encounter or just sort of the ongoing everyday stuff where Jesus likes to intervene in our lives, all of those moments force a decision. Are we going to lean in further to Jesus or are we going to resist and back away? This whole biography of Jesus by John is written, to quote John, so that you may believe, so that you may you, you, you align your whole entire life towards allegiance to him and lean in to him. And often we immediately think at that line, so they may believe, like those, them, others outside, like those who don't yet believe at all. And that's true. This is an incredibly evangelistic gospel of Jesus. But where we find ourselves here in the text, here in the story, is an interaction between Jesus and those who already, quote-unquote, believe. Those who are already faced with moments of aligning their life to God or not. The leaders, the ones who have it all together, the Bible scholars, the professors, the pastors, the religious leaders. And what we see in John is that the healing ministry of Jesus always served as a lightning rod for people. People who are still trying to know or discover who or what Jesus actually is. And it forces the question, how will you respond to him? So to those who are broken, who are hurting, the official son, the, the lame man at the pool, in need of Jesus in real, tangible, and powerful ways, how do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to him? To those who think they have it all together and are maybe quite shiny on the outside, how do you respond to Jesus? And in John chapter 4, beginning of John chapter 5, we have these two healing stories from Jesus, his second and third signs throughout John. He heals the official son, and in that Jesus even has a critique. You won't even believe without the sign. You won't believe without the sign. 
And the takeaway is Jesus' grace is so much larger than our unbelief. He works amidst our skepticism and our cynicism. And the response is that he believed. He experienced the tangible presence of Jesus and believed. He and his whole household. And in that second sign that we have here in the narrative, Jesus is questioning, do you want to be healed? And the response from the paralytic is to go tell people. He either gets questions, he's telling everyone. He's like so experienced the tangible presence of Jesus that he just has to let other people know. But there's another response lurking in that story. And we get the hint of that when we read John as this healing took place on the Sabbath. We know there's another party involved here. Unlike the official son that sort of happened on the way and, and maybe just limited to this official's house, this healing of the lame man at the pool is very public. It was in front of a whole lot of people, including the religious elite, those who are skeptical and cynical about the ministry of Jesus. And their response is not, whoa, he healed this guy. Maybe he is who he says he is. What's their response? What did you do on Sunday? You're breaking the rules. What are you doing? Closed on Sunday. No Chick-fil-A here. Nothing. Shut it down. What are you doing? Talk about missing the forest for the trees this guy. That's how hard their hearts were to Jesus. People don't just go around speaking with confidence and authority about healing or putting spit and mud on people's faces. There was something profoundly unique about what Jesus was doing in his approach to ministry. He was very much a move fast and break things kind of rabbi. Have you ever been faced with a demonstration of God's presence and power that had to force you to decide, was that God or was that man? Like this so disrupts my worldview and my norm. What was going on here? What was happening here? What do you do with that? Well, here in the text, we have the not great response to what you do at that moment. They see this guy who has been 38 years a lame man by this very public pool suddenly out and about and walking and telling about this Jesus who healed him. What do you do with that? The not so great response is found here in verse 18, 19, 20. Thank you. 18, 19, 20. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Their response. Jesus says to them, knowing what's brewing in their minds. They didn't say it out loud. That's not what the text says. But knowing what's brewing in their minds, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus miraculously heals this guy, and the religious leaders are upset, one, because he's breaking the rules and doing it on the Sabbath, but two, an even deeper issue is at play here. He's claiming equality with God. He says, I'm the son of God. I am equal to God. And they are 
very upset at this. They want to kill him. And don't just breeze past that in the narrative. From the very beginning of his ministry, these guys are out to kill Jesus. So this might be some last words moment from Jesus. So if you've got something important to say, to defend yourself, to try and communicate the most important thing about you, maybe possibly in defense, what do you say? And Jesus says, the Father and I are one. Which is not so much a defense in the eyes of the religious leaders, but like doubling down on an already troubling situation. This is a beautiful text about Jesus claiming equality with God. And we can sit back here 2,000 some odd years later and the theology of it all go, oh, wow, this is beautiful and poetic and interesting. But at the time, these were fighting words. These were disrupting the norm uh, words. These were disrupting the power structures of the day words. And what we see in the responses, we see these two healings and the responses to these healings are three things. Three things. If you're a note-taking kind of person, these are three things to jot down. One, Jesus says to reject himself, to reject Jesus, is to reject God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Two, Scripture apart from Jesus is lifeless. Scripture apart from Jesus is lifeless. Three, we have been approved by the only one whose approval matters. So we don't have to seek it from others. These may seem like three disjointed thoughts, but these are the responses that Jesus has to the Pharisees who take contention with his healing on the Sabbath and claim equality with God. And he very beautifully, very poetically weaves together these three ideas that to reject Jesus to reject the Son is to reject the Father. That Scripture itself, this is a hard one for us to swallow, isn't it? Apart from Jesus is lifeless. Jesus' words, not mine. And number three, we have been approved by the only one who matters, so we don't have to seek approval from others. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This wasn't just like abstract. We're going to see in John chapter 11, he does this like in real life to Lazarus. He actually raises a dude from the dead. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Here's the key line here in verse 23. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So to reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. Not that way ordinary believers can claim to be sons and daughters of God, but in the sense that he was equal to God in his nature and in every way, yet related to God in this father-son relationship. Which gets right to the main beef that the Pharisees have with Jesus. Not only is he healing on the Sabbath, but he's claiming equality with God, which was blasphemy. The punishment of which, Jewish law, was death. So it's not like they have a, 
it's not like they're taking this up to 11 with the punishment here. This was the accepted punishment for blasphemy, if it's not true. He claimed the Father's works as his own, including raising the dead. The religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus because of this claim. Now, we need to understand that kind of response is wrong. Their understanding of what Jesus was saying was not. You guys tracking? The response to kill Jesus in this moment is not the best response. But their understanding of what Jesus was actually saying was spot on. Was spot on. And part of the reason they're so up in arms is because Jesus is posing this sort of ultimatum. To reject him is to reject God. Even a step further to reject Jesus and his way is to reject God. Even though they were in with God, these Pharisees, they study the scriptures, they follow the rules, Jesus is telling them they're missing it entirely. And might I ask a question here? Do we have a problem similar to the Pharisees? It's not that we want to kill him, but rather we don't actually fully believe his claim and what it means for our lives. Jesus says he's God. Do we actually believe him? Not intellectual pop quiz, yes or no. Full life, faith and allegiance to Jesus above all else. Do we believe? This is the question at the root of John's gospel. John chapter 20, once again. So that you may believe. If we believe whole life, faith and allegiance to Jesus, that has to change how we live. Not in a non-Christian to Christian moment, yes, but also every day as we are growing to become more like him. The person and power and presence of Jesus always confronts our sinfulness. It always confronts ourselves and causes us into greater sanctification through the power of the Spirit. And here's the truth of this text. You can say yes with your lips and no with your lives. You can say yes to Jesus with your lips and no with your lives. And according to Jesus, as he's talking about sheep and goats, your life is what mattered. Not this intellectual pop quiz that you get right to get out of hell. Your actual life is going to display whose kingdom you are aligned to. He says he's God. Do we believe him? Have we said yes to Jesus with our lips? but reject him in our hearts and lives and how we live? Have we said yes to Jesus with our lips and our butts by showing up on a Sunday gathering, but no with the rest of our lives? Has our yes to Jesus changed how we treat others, how we love our enemies, how we make our calendar and spend our money? Jesus says those things are far more important than Sunday attendance. Verse 30, Jesus not only says to reject him is to reject God, but he says your diligent study of the scriptures mean nothing if they don't find themselves in me. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. As if he's like backing up this huge claim with all these witnesses, he says... In verses 33, 34, 35, that John the Baptist 
is convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and makes him known. Verse 36, his own works, his miracles, his signs, all up until this point, serve as more proof that Jesus is who he says he is. The Father himself in verses 37 and 38 say in the same way God reveals himself to humankind through messengers, works, and words, Jesus' deity is affirmed by the Father and by Scripture itself. Verses 39 and 40, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Scriptures. And this is where Jesus camps out a lot. Because he affirms their diligent study of Scripture. He says, yeah, well done. Good job. You guys are in Scripture. They probably have a leg up on you and I who've maybe not been in Scripture since last Sunday. Uh, He says, okay, well done. You study the Scriptures a lot. But you think in them there is life. And you miss the point. These Pharisees that Jesus was talking to regarded the Scriptures with such esteem that they thought that by studying the actual parchment and letters of Scripture, they had eternal life. That if they just intellectually mastered the text, that was enough for eternal life. They held this belief so much so that in copying the Scriptures, as they were continuing to pass these along, a scribe was not allowed to write more than one letter before it would come back to the text. So they get nothing wrong. Incredibly exact, incredibly accurate. And that eccentricity is wonderful for us because we have a highly accurate, very old documentation. But it points to an underlying mistake in the focus of their faith. They really felt, as Jesus said, that in the scriptures they found life. One of the greatest rabbis, Hillel, talks about uh, this in a narrow list of maxims that his followers bought into. And it went like this, quote, More flesh, more worms. More wealth, more care. More maidservants, more movements. More men servants, more thievery. More women, more witchcraft. I don't really know what to do with some of these here, but this is what he said. More Torah, more life. More Torah, more life. Whoso hath gained a good name has gained it for himself. Who hath gained the words of the Torah hath gained for himself life in the world to come. In other words, life is found in the scripture. Now, part of us may even go like, yeah, life is found in scripture, right? Like studying scripture is a good thing. Like, I want to find God. And one of the ways I hear from God or find him or discover him is through scripture, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. But where's your focus? If your focus is on accumulating knowledge or mastery of the text, well, those are not bad things in and of themselves. If Jesus is not the centerpiece we have missed it. Because Jesus says, the only way we can derive life from the scriptures is to see Jesus in the scriptures. Because the scriptures bear witness about him. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is ultimately about Jesus. And scripture apart from Jesus is lifeless. So we believe the Bible is not an end to itself. It is a beautiful means with which we can learn marvelous truths and actually know Jesus. But it's not an end to itself. I'm not going to read the whole story, but there's this moment in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, and these disciples or these Jewish guys are leaving Jerusalem. They have their face turned away from Jerusalem, and they're pretty bummed because Jesus died. And there was this huge ruckus in town. And post-resurrection, Jesus appears right next to them. How? I don't know. But he appears next to them, and he's asking what's going on, and they're saying, are you living under a rock? Don't you know what just happened in this city? And they tell him about it. 
And then at that point, Jesus, who is still yet to be revealed as who he is, takes them through the entirety of the scriptures to show how everything points to Jesus the Christ. Everything. Now, in that story, Luke chapter 24, it's a good read. Go check it out on your own. As Jesus is talking to them, he has not yet revealed that he is Jesus. That comes a little bit later. Here's the point. On the road to Emmaus, apparently knowing that Jesus had resurrected could wait. Knowing that Jesus was the point of Scripture could not. The reason he revealed himself like this, it seems, is that he wanted to take them through the scriptures and show them how Israel's entire story points to him. To Jesus, making sure his disciples knew that he is the epicenter of all scripture. It's one of the most important things we can grasp. Which brings us back to our question, how do we miss Jesus in scripture? In the life of Jesus, we have these examples of people who missed Scripture. They missed Jesus and thus missed Scripture. The Pharisees, who were like the modern fundamentalists of the day, would study every single little thing, and they missed him entirely. Not only they were missing the point, they were weaponizing Scripture against others. They were heaping on burden and legalism and extra rules, and they were missing the heart and story of God. There might be people we know or we read about who might sound a lot like this. But there was another group, if that was the theological conservative, if you will. There was another group, the Sadducees, who didn't really take the Bible seriously at all. And they might relate a little bit to the theological left in our day. They were in the city center. They were the elites that are shaping culture in Jerusalem. And the Sadducees would dismiss the word of God as the word of God. They would see scripture not as scripture, but just as good literature and maybe some good history. And Jesus, in Matthew 22, tells them, you're wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Both of these groups, one who would seek to weaponize scripture and miss Jesus, and one that seeks to dismiss it away, sit above the text rather than under it. They were using the scripture to find life and meaning and success and power, and they were missing Jesus as the centerpiece of the story right in front of them. And essentially, they made the scriptures about themselves. They made their scriptures about themselves and about whatever pet issues they had. Whatever issues around for them, resurrection, ceremonial laws, ritual laws, for us, I wonder what that might be where we make the scriptures about us and miss Jesus. When we read the scripture, he's the centerpiece. He's the one we're after. And we're there too, but we're like kind of in the background. It's not about us. Scripture is about Jesus. And that's what he tells the Pharisees who've missed it. You're looking to support whatever your thing is, and all your good rule following is missing the one they were pointing to. But he's not done with them yet, because then he makes this what seems like a weird tangent to talk about glory and reputation and honor. John 5, verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, Jesus says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. 
can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think, I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses. Lost on us today. This is like a mic drop moment. This is like the guy. He wrote the Torah. God gave him the Ten Commandments twice, but he gave him the Ten Commandments. He led him out of Egypt. He led them to the promised land. Moses. Moses accuses you because you've set your hope on him. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. If you really knew what the scriptures were saying, Jesus says, you would have seen me coming because he wrote it now. If you do not believe in his writings, turns it on his head. You actually don't believe Moses. You don't believe what he said. How will you believe my words? Now, this message on scripture all being all about Jesus uncovers another issue here at the heart of the Pharisees, that he taps into here with glory and honor and seeking glory from one another, which is like self-love and self-importance. The Jewish leaders tragically preferred receiving glory from one another rather than seeking the glory of God. And no sin or idolatry is more insidious and self-destructive than living for the approval of other people. That's what will get you. You can justify anything if your end goal is the approval of other people. The Proverbs say the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The response of the Jews towards the scripture and Jesus was symptomatic of a deeper problem, which Jesus confronts directly, which is a love of self. For this reason, Jesus counters not only their inadequate knowledge of God in the scripture, but also their inadequate love. Four times in this passage, Jesus describes himself as having been sent by God, yet he was being rejected by those who claimed to love God. They were missing it. Their declaration of love does not square with their lives. And you cannot love God if you refuse to submit to Jesus the Christ as God. Another way we can look at this moment is not only inadequate love, but inadequate worship. In his book, You Are What You Love, I've used this quote so many times, guys. You guys are going to think I just steal everything from James K.A. Smith. But in his book, You Are What You Love, Smith says, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do, it's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it's the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. And from there we love. The whole of following Jesus is about retraining our hearts to love something other than ourselves. That's it. Redirecting our worship from anything and everything that tries to take the place of God. Relationships, stuff, religion, money, ourself, all redirected back to Jesus. Now, rather than coming to condemn, Jesus came to manifest the love of God. John 3, 16 and 17. While we loved ourselves, God loved us and would sacrifice everything for us. God sacrificed himself for everyone else. So in this gospel of grace, we're liberated from the need to be approved by people. 
And self-love is our primary motivation because in Jesus, we have been approved by and loved by the only one whose approval matters. And the only one whose approval actually satisfies. Back half of John chapter 4, all of John 5, Jesus claims equality with God. He's from God. He's in sync with the Father. He and the Father are one. And believing this most basic fundamental truth about Jesus leads us to three things. One, to reject Jesus and his way of life is to reject God. Two, that scripture apart from Jesus is lifeless. And three, that we have been approved by the only one whose approval matters. So we don't have to seek it from others. Jesus beautifully weaves these three core issues in the human heart together in the simple response of Jesus healing the guy at the pool and the Pharisees taking issue with who's breaking the rules and healing on the Sabbath. Now, lest we fall into the same trap as the religious leaders, let's take a moment of honesty and ask ourselves where we've been missing Jesus, where we search in scriptures but missing Jesus, where we trying to believe in God but rejecting actually how he's calling us to live, and where we're actually looking for the approval of others and not basking and resting and enjoying and delighting in the approval God has already extended towards you and me. To our starting question, we have encountered Jesus through the text. We've encountered him through worship. We've encountered him through the beauty and mess that is family together on a Sunday morning. How do you leave? How do you leave changed? In, um, in our pre-gathering prayer, I played out of this uh, verse in the Psalms. I think it was Psalm 98. Is a different psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What do we do with an encounter with Jesus? Maybe you've experienced healing. Maybe he saved you and brought you into his family. Maybe the Holy Spirit was at work in you as we were teaching through this text. What do you do with that? How do you respond to that? Where is the Holy Spirit prompting and nudging you to change, to lean into Jesus and the life he has for you? Go ahead and stand. I want to pray for you as we respond and worship together. Jesus, thank you for my brothers and sisters here in the room. Thank you for the kids and the constant reminder that life is not free of distractions. In the parable of the sower, Jesus, you say the distractions of the world choke out the word. And if we cannot learn to focus in on you amidst the distractions of this world, our faith will be choked out. Thank you for this mini sermon you've given us with our lovely and lively kiddos here this morning. Thank you that you say bring the children to me. And for us who are having a hard time focusing, this is everyday life. The distractions of social media, of phone, of work, of school, of friends, of relationships are all taking our attention off you, Jesus. 
And so we need the power of your Holy Spirit to lean in. Jesus, we have encountered you today through the text, through worship. We want to be changed by you. In your grace, in your kindness, would you lead us to repentance? Would you lead us to self-reflection? Would you lead us to examination? To know that we have encountered the living God. And that has to mean something for how we live. And Jesus, I pray that even right now as we take a moment, as we sing, to pray for one another, that you'd even show us like what one little baby step as we leave this place is going to look like. What's our, what's our next step? What's our like baby step in reorganizing our life around you? And maybe it just starts by asking the question or admitting that maybe our lives are not quite organized around you. Jesus, I pray that you give us strength and boldness to obey. Jesus, would you, in your kindness, meet us here in our worship.